Hey, cool, y'all. You ever thought about who can actually fly a Black Hawk helicopter? Well, today, that question is going to get answered because my boy Tim Hooper is on, and he is a Black Hawk helicopter pilot. He's got some really cool stories about his deployment and how he even got into all this stuff in the first place. I really enjoyed talking to him, him and all of his table fare, and I know you will too. The Kuyon Classroom's in session, and I'm about to learn you a thing in three. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. What's up, Tim? Tim the Tool Man Hooper. What's going on, buddy? What's up, man? How are you? Um, I'm doing well, man. I appreciate you coming on today. Uh, I know you've been on before when we had the little bow fishing thing, but I really wanted to kind of have you on to talk about some of your life experiences because you're a pretty interesting cat. You, guess, you and all your table fare. <laughs> Thanks for having me on again, man. It was a lot of fun, man. I was a little apprehensive at the first time and even this time, but uh, last time, man, I had a blast. It was actually a lot of fun. Yeah, you. That was that was your first podcast, right? First podcast. First podcast. First, first podcast. I can't even talk right. First podcast you on. Uh, yeah, hopefully many more. That's what's good about you living right around the, the neighborhood. That anytime we need somebody to come on and just hang out, me and you can come and chat. So. Again, I'm just glad that you're here. Yes, it's, it's going to be a, a good one today. Yeah, man, I'm I'm trying to do good because I'm trying to plant the seed. I want to be a little co- uh, a guest co-host every oh, now and then. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Audition. You're going to be Corey Part Two. Corey Part yeah, Two. Corey 2.0. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny too because you know. So if we talk about the whole TikTok world, you, Corey, Brad, Lonnie, all those guys are on TikTok, uh, basically because of me, and they have they all have that same "Hey" moniker. So for you. Whenever you first joined, yours was Hey Hooper yep. to kind of go along with the Hey E-Rock. But I think the funniest part about it, though, is that you, it was your very first ever social media. Like, you don't have any other social media. That's it, man. That was my very first and only, still to this and day, only. the only social media. Yeah, well, TikTok. TikTok, TikTok's really the only way to go. Everything else is just kind of uh, too much shenanigans. But, yep. you know, it, it is what it is. So, anyway, you and I have been friends for a few years. We met through soccer. Actually, I, I coach your daughter at Hallville High School and, uh, you know, we, we're both soccer families. So we just had a bunch of stuff in common and, and it's kind of been a budding friendship, if you will. <laughs> heart, heart emojis. Uh, no, but so you and I have become fishing buddies. You know, you got a bunch of places where you go fishing and hunting and and have a look, have a couple of adult beverages, too, I might add. Every now and then. Yeah, you know, we yeah. may partake in a few of those. Yeah, man, it was uh, really awesome uh, how we linked up. Uh, again, what you guys do with our kids with the soccer man is is awesome, and I'm sure we're gonna get into a little bit of that. But uh, yeah, man, it's been it's been fun, man, and uh, and the little group that we've like we were talking about Corey and Lonnie and all those guys, Brad started meeting all those guys, and we hang out and had a good time, man. Nice little group of friends, man. Yeah, it's good always people. nice to to find a good group of guys that you can relate to and that you get along with, uh, because you know it's just yeah, just having some good times, you know, making some good memories. But the, the funny thing about our kids, though, is that, you know, my daughter's name is Ashlyn. And when we named her, she was the only Ashlyn I had ever heard of. We had talked about maybe Ashley, you know, things like that. But one day uh, we said Ashlyn. And I was like, oh, that's fantastic. And, of course, your daughter is older than us, so you beat me to it, even though we didn't know enough each other back then. But your daughter's name is Ashlyn, too. Yeah. 
So I just thought that was kind of funny when when she, her freshman year, and I was like, oh, I'll be damned. There's another Ashland around here. How about that? Yeah, that's what I was going to We've never even really talked about that, no. man. Like when she showed up on a team and you saw Ashland. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, so I was like, well, I'm never going to forget your name. <laughs> but the, the only problem is next year your Ashland's going to be a senior. My Ashland's going to be a freshman. So it's like, well, you know, how is that going to work? And we've tossed some names around, like, how are you going to distinguish between the two? But we really haven't. Nothing's stuck yet, has it? Or no. What do you, well, what's the plan? So during quarantine, um, your Ashland was actually training with me. Right. And, and my Ashland and, and a couple of the other girls just to kind of, you know, pass some time, work on some skills, do some dribbling, some technique, all kind of stuff. Well, at that point, both Ashlands were there. So I just started calling yours Hooper because it's it was really hard for me to change my own Ashland's name. I just could not – I couldn't call her DeSoto. I couldn't call her anything else. I had to call her Ashland. So I was like – I told yours. I'm like, well, sorry, kid. I'm, I'm changing your name. <laughs> and she was fine with it. it. It was no big deal. Well, and, you know, when I was young – well, even to this day, but it started way back when I was young. People called me Hooper. Yep. They really didn't – you know, they used, I probably use my last name more than they use my first name. I don't know if it's just that kind of name that it just kind of yeah, I think goes so too. that way. Yeah, the, your name just kind of rolls off the tongue. So, like, my last name's DeSoto. It's not like too many people would say, hey, DeSoto. But Hooper is, I mean, I've, I've known guys that we've called Hooper or Hoop. Hoop. So, that's a pretty, lot of people call me Hoop. Yeah, so that's a yeah. pretty easy nickname. Uh, but your Ashlyn is actually kind of special to us because she she's one of our captains she plays attack in mid, so she everything basically runs through her in the midfield. So she's kind of a great kid, and she's um, you know definitely been a great addition to our soccer team. Well, man, I appreciate that, and uh, I will tell you what you guys do at Homeville, um, and, I, and I've told you this before, but uh, what you guys do over there is awesome. Um, you guys take it to a whole nother level. It's not just the, the play on the field and what you guys are teaching those girls. It's really it's also the life lessons. Uh, being mentors to them. So, you know, I, I really appreciate all of what you guys are doing and and how you guys coach and what you guys do and the message you're putting out there. It's It's been awesome, her being there. Yeah. You know, it really has been. Well, I definitely appreciate that. You know, one thing that we've talked about, too, is that it's not always about the soccer, especially for a lot of kids these days because a lot of them are never playing past high school. So high school is such transformative years where they're going to have to be uh, they're going to eventually have to be a good contributing member of society. So we're trying to do our best to give them life lessons through sport because it's such a powerful um, teaching tool. So we try to kind of accentuate leadership, leadership, talk about responsibility, accountability, what it's like to be a good teammate, because ultimately you are going to be an employee. You're going to be a wife. You're going to be a mother. And a lot of those things that you learn from sport transfer to that. Man, I could not agree more. Um, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more how that that transitioned in my life through the years. But hundred um, percent agree exactly what you're saying. Um, there is so many lessons um, that I took. I played sports as a as a kid all through high school. wasn't very good, but yeah. I played sports Fair. a lot, um, and I love sports. And I learned so many lessons that I used later on in my life and continue to this day. Um, we, those kids learn, there, there's so many things they learn just from the competitive nature. You know, that's what we are, you know, as Americans, it's kind of in our, yeah. in, in what we is almost in the root of everything that we believe in that competitive nature. It, it starts there. Um, how they work as a team, 
how they work with other people. Uh, and then what you guys are teaching them on how they're doing that is so important, man. Uh, and, and we could go on and on about this, but with kids of that nowadays with sports, so many sports are going year round, travel, mm-hmm. baseball, all these things. And some of these coaches and people, man, all they're all, all about is winning. Now it is very important. You know, I, I believe that the preparation, all the hard work is, is great, but man, there's so many other lessons to learn there. And yep. you guys are doing it right at Homeville. I really, truly believe you guys are doing it the right yeah. way. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, it's not easy, um, and we're not perfect. We, we make mistakes, <laughs> but, you know, it's a learning process. We learn every year. We kind of reflect on the things that we've done in the, the, over the years. And I've been there for about six or seven years now coaching with Homeville, and I am definitely by far not the same coach that I was when I first started. Uh, so it, it's definitely been a learning process for us, too. But, you know, some of the things that are super important in sport is things like just learning to fail, learning to oh, lose. Absolutely. Uh, you know, trying hard and things don't go your way because there's it's so relatable to every day, you know, outside of sport. Just, you know, being a kid, being an adult. And that's some of these things are just immeasurable. Yep, absolutely. You know, you know and accountability, like making sure that you're there on time. You have to be there on time. You've got a responsibility. You've got to work hard just like the rest of your friends. You've got to train. You've got to expand your education from there, making sure you bring your own cleats. We talk about diet, exercise. We also talk about hydration. So there's so many things that, you know, a lot of kids, they just don't even realize is even a thing because they're used to mommy and daddy fixing their water or packing their soccer bag. And we tell them, don't do it. Like, let your kids forget their cleats at home and then they'll have to pay the price at practice. Like it's part of growing up. You have to be an adult. Now you have to figure it out yourself. And it's something we were talking about uh, just the other day. Uh, it's amazing. These lessons that these kids are learning. Some of these kids are not even, they're not even realizing they learn. They're learning these lessons. Oh right yeah, now. definitely. They're going to may, they may not even realize it 10 years down the road. Um, they're going to do something they took from playing soccer or playing in a sport and they're going to do it and they're going to learn from that or they're going to they're going to grow from that and they don't even realize it it's just yep. it, it's been instilled in them it's great yeah it's, it's the truth it's, it's kind of like a thankless job too but you know a lot of them will get aggravated or they'll get mad at us and they don't want to do this and they don't want to do that i get it but you know you're still going to do it because there are certain rules like you gotta you gotta do all these certain things but maybe eventually down the road like you said they'll they'll have that aha yeah. moment they'll right. say huh and that's something else yep. like, you know, and we, and I've had girls reach out to me that are in college or out of college and say, you know, well, you sure were right as much as they hated to admit it. And I'm not saying that, you know, they need to do that or I need that justification, but Hey, look, if, if, if I can just, you know, fix one kid, then. Yeah, man. And something we were talking about actually a couple of months ago really struck me. Um, and it made so much sense. And it's something that, kind of like what you were talking about these kids and we were talking about it's something I've learned from sports and didn't realize it and connect the dots until we were talking. Um, and you may not even remember this conversation, but a couple months ago, you, I think it was right before the playoffs. Maybe you guys were getting ready and you were talking about that. We're teaching the kids a lesson of playing together as a team and trusting your teammate to be at the right spot and trust them, do your job and trust the guy or the girl next to you to do her job. That 
is so important in, in what I do and what I've, uh, we'll get to it, but you know, I've been in the military for a while and we'll talk some on that, but those things are so important that I learned and took with me because it is crucial in what I do is to not only do your job, but you have to trust the person next to you to do their job and work as a team, right? Any team and a group of people, you know, working together and going in the same direction and, and with the same motivation, the same drive and that same laser focus going in that direction is, is unstoppable. Yep. You know? Yeah. And that was kind of one of the reasons that we changed that focus to the trust issue. Uh, we talked a lot about that between trusting your teammates, trusting the coaches and trusting the program because all of that really just kind of comes together. We have some fantastic individual players on our team. We really do. Um, but those fantastic players cannot beat another team of 11 if they're by themselves. But when they play together and they trust one another, as you know, and just about everything else, that team of 11 is very powerful. And while we struggled with that in the middle of the season, once they started to figure that out, trust the process, trust their teammates. I mean, the playoffs shows, you know, that's the fruit of their labor. We want to make it to the quarterfinals, as you know, and there's no way we would have done that midseason. Right. So. And, it, and it showed. It definitely showed. And man, it's, it's, and you hit on something too, it's trusting the process, trusting that process. It's important to prepare. It's important to have a good plan. Um, all those things are extremely important. Uh, but if some of those things are lacking or maybe you don't have the talent, you know, um, but it's just kind of even across the board and everybody is trusting the process, even if it's not the best process, you're going to, you know, you're going to, just like you said, you're going to be rewarded with those benefits, man. It's just amazing when you see a group of people working together and going in the same direction. It's amazing. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, even outside of that, you know, I, you know, I do CrossFit and when I was training competitively, I hated the training or I got to a certain point where I did. It, it's not really the same anymore, but it was so hard and it was such hard work. And I, I'd always say, man, is it worth it? Should I even be doing this? But if you trust the process and just grind, then, you know, you get to show the fruits of your labor at yeah, the end, absolutely. you know, and it's the same thing with anything. No one really sees what goes on behind the scenes. All they see is the finished product. And I think that's part of the problem these days. If they, if I quote unquote problem is you see these Michael Jordan, you see LeBron James, you see Drew Brees, and you see them doing all these winning all these championships and doing amazing things, but nobody sees the grind. They, nobody sees them showing up at, 4 a.m. watching video, just putting in hours and hours of work, you know, honing their craft, whether it's practice or on their own. And I can tell you the vast majority of kids these days aren't doing anything outside of practice. They're doing it at practice, thinking that it's just going to be better. And we try to say, hey, look, if you do this over the summer or here's this program, if you do this outside of here, it will be better. You will be better. But you know, they just don't really understand that. You'll get a couple here and there that will, but. Yeah. And then you get a couple more that eventually will understand that and they'll take those lessons and then they're going to make some of themselves or be exceptional in certain things. And that's, what's really that again, the circle back to that's what's awesome about, uh, athletics, you know, for kids, you yeah. know, 
definitely. It, it, it's it's definitely, you know, because look, I mean, what are we talking about? Most kids, they're going to they're going to play sports and learn all these lessons. You're going to have 1% make it beyond high school and then even less than that 1% of those kids are going to make it so that they can, you know, actually um, be professional at some at, at you right. know, some sport. So they're going to go on and do other things. So all those lessons that they're learning is, is you know, way above my mind than, yeah. than, than the sport, yeah. you know, what they're learning and, and, and what they're going to accomplish in the sport, you know, yep. they're going to take those lessons for the rest of their life. Yep. A hundred percent. So anyway, I'm sure you and I could probably talk about that for hours, <laughs> yeah. that one subject, but the real reason that I had you on here is, you are a very interesting person. You have had, you and I have had lots of discussions about some of your experiences, and and I haven't been, I don't have anywhere near some of those experiences that you have. So I just kind of wanted to start from the beginning and just kind of let people know a little bit about Tim, um, the Table Fair Hooper. <laughs> so most of the guests that I've had on here so far have been local guys, and while you are local now, you aren't from this area. Where 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 are you from exactly? I'm from Kennebra. You're from Kennebra, yeah, right across the river, boy. <laughs> right across and, from the river. Yeah, and and you went to what school? I went to Bonneville, man. Bonneville. Bonneville, bro. Bonneville. So what is that like? Bear claws? What was y'all's That's mascot? Right. Bruins, man. The Bruins. Yeah, that's the same thing. There you go. Yeah, Bruin. That's a bear. Is that's that just bear, another man. name for a bear? It's a big badass bear. Yeah. Okay. I guess I guess it's better than a panda bear. Um, so after high school, you said you played sports, but what sports did you play? You uh, played in high school? Yeah, uh, football and baseball. Okay. That was, you know, all I played, you know. Um, but to your own admission, nothing really to write home no, about. No, man, yeah. not at all. I was a small kid. I mean, I'm not huge, not not big by any means now, but, man, I was tiny. Um, freshman year of football, I was, like, maybe right at five foot, and I weighed, like, a buck five. Golly, you was a little bitty penis. I was tiny, tiny. Yeah, yeah man, so... You know, that was rough, man, but you know, I played with a lot of heart. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> that's good. So after high school, did you go to college? I did, man. So kind of, so so this is how I ended up. This is beginning, I've already alluded to uh, being in the military. Uh, currently, I've been in for 23 years. I'm still in. Um, that's how I ended up in the military was college. So back then, uh, I didn't, you know, my family wasn't very well off. So paying for college uh, that, that was a way to pay for college. So I joined the army national guard and to talk a little bit about that. So people understand what the army national guard is, uh, each branch of the military has multiple components. Uh, so let's take the army. For example, the army has your active duty component, which is the army. And then they have the reserve and the national guard. Uh, the big difference is we're just, we're a reserve component. Uh, the difference with the national guard though is, is, Part of the time, you belong to the state. So the governor is your boss, is your commander-in-chief. And then during wartime and certain other times, you can be called to active duty. And then, then you're just part of the Army, you know, the active duty component. And now the president's part of your is your boss. So that's kind of how uh, the Army National Guard. So I joined that to go to school. I uh, started at Southeastern in 1998. Actually, 99. I graduated in 98. So now you're kind of breaking the streak of my podcast. It seems like every single person I've had on went from Hallville straight to Harvard (laughs) on the Bayou and Nichols. So now you at Southeastern. So, man, I didn't know nothing about Harvard on the Bayou. So I I went to Southeastern, you know, I didn't know it. You know, I didn't know what was going on down here back then. Uh (laughs) Yeah, that's North I-10. It's a whole other world. Whole nother world. Yeah. 
Uh, so anyway, we, um, and actually in Kenner, I'd lived just south of I-10. So I was still south of I-10. Oh, okay. So well, you was right on the Fritz though. I was right there, man. Almost <laughs> a Yankee by like an inch. <laughs> so anyway, I went to Southeastern, uh, was doing that. And then this little thing, you know, 9-11 happened. Oh, yep. Yep. So, um, an interesting story. So me and a good friend of mine, you know, uh, my buddy, Eric, mm-hmm. another Eric. Yep. Another Eric. He's not as cool as me, but he's still a cool dude though. <laughs> Shout out to Eric. What's up, dude? So anyway, uh, Eric, me and him grew up together. Uh, and we both went in the military. He went in the Marine Corps. I went in the army national guard. So he was active duty Marine Corps. He was home on leave and we were actually out partying, uh, the night before we were still up that morning, uh, when everything transpired on nine 11. Dang. Yeah, and immediately it was, I mean, it was pretty uh, it's pretty sobering because yeah. uh, uh, Eric was on leave, immediately got a call, said, hey, grab your stuff, you're coming back. They He immediately left and uh, went back to North Carolina. Actually, they went to, he went to North Carolina. They actually stopped in New York and was actually helped with some of the recovery in New York uh, days after, mm-hmm. and then they were on a ship headed to Afghanistan. He went very early on. Uh, so they were doing work real early. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Like, there's, you know, you're. It's an interesting bond between your memories and where you were. Like, certain things will trigger memories. For me, I'm a big music guy, so, so a lot of times I'll hear a song, and it will immediately make me think of a certain day and a date somewhere. It's weird, but I've actually had this conversation with a lot of people, and I'm sure you're probably the same. I know exactly what was going on, where I was, how I felt, the color of the sky. Um, I remember all that when 9-11 happened. And it was it was just something, it's unbelievable to just go through that experience. And look, we weren't even in the 9-11 debacle. Like we were just, we're in Louisiana when all this is transpiring and Man, so many emotions. I mean, even right now, just like all these things running through my head, all these memories, just it's crazy how all that is tied together. Yeah, it's 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 crazy. And look, man, most of my stories, I'm not an interesting person. I have not, not done anything special, but I have been around a ton of people that are special and have done some amazing stuff. Uh, and it, it's awesome to have known all those people and have done all those things. It's 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 really it just feels good to be a little bit a part of that, you know. Yep. So anyway, after 9-11, uh, school was kind of put on hold, or really put on hold. Um, I didn't deploy right away. Uh, I did some stateside stuff, missions for securing the airports and the ports uh, after, right after 9-11. Did that for a little while. Actually went back to school for just a short period of time. Went back to UNO um, because I was living back in New Orleans then at that point. Went back to UNO for a little bit, and then again. The war was ramping up in Iraq. So we got put on, you know, we call it sourcing. So my unit was deploying to Iraq. So we started ramping up for that. And then that's a lot of training that goes on in that. Uh, And then we uh, left to go to Iraq in 2004. So I was in Iraq in 2004 to 2005. So very early on in in that and which is really funny i hear a lot of a lot of veterans and a lot of guys talking about it it was so funny man back in 2003 well 2002 kind of afghanistan started ramping up big in the spring of 03 for iraq um <laughs> and being a young man and doing you know doing that kind of stuff being in the military for a couple of years 
I wanted to get a piece of that, man. One, I, I just felt like I needed to be there. I've been training for this. Right. We, everybody's attitude at that point in time, you know, after what had just transpired and our eyes as a country was really opening up to see what was going on around the world, you know? Um, so I wanted to go help, man. I wanted to do my part and I thought I was missing it. I really did. And a mm -hmm. lot of guys talk about that. We thought this was going to be, especially when Iraq kicked off, man, we rolled through there in a very short amount of time. Um, and we just thought, you know, this was going to be wrapped up in six months, maybe a year, you know? So, um, I actually, I'm glad the way it transpired. It's funny how life just does this. When Iraq started really kicking off or before, cause we knew it was starting to ramp up. I tried to go to another unit. I tried to go act duty cause I wanted to get there right away. Um, it didn't pan out and I'm glad it didn't cause when it happened, it, it really worked out. Uh, so I show up there in 2004, which the insurgency was, I mean, took off then. I mean, it was really the heaviest fighting was in Iraq around that time. So it was very interesting, man. Um, so were you out there, like, in the battlegrounds, like, actually fighting? Yeah, man, I was an infantry unit. Uh, I was a Ford Observer, which is an art. I was in artillery. I was a Ford Observer, um, which is it's just part of infantry. You what, know? what does that mean, Ford Observer? So, I, I know you're not looking at <laughs> looking for Ford vehicles while you're out there. but <laughs> So a Ford Observer is a guy out in the front where we, we drop and shoot a lot of uh, larger munitions, bombs, right? And some of those weapon systems, you you're shooting them from so far away, you're not looking at the target that you're shooting at. The Ford Observer is. So Ford Observer is out there looking at that target and then sending coordinates back or some other data that can calculate those coordinates for those munitions to be shot onto a target. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I have another buddy of mine. I'll have, I'm going to have him on one of these days. My buddy Aaron Phillips, he was a Marine, uh, but he, he um, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like a big dummy, but he... Uh, for lack of better terms, would shoot tow missiles. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he, he told us some of those stories, and it's just so fascinating. I'm super fascinated with all that stuff. You know, I'm, I, I never was in the military, uh, but I just, I've got much respect for you and those guys that have been there. So, of course, you know, thank you for your service and your sacrifices uh, for what you've done, uh, sacrificing with your family, you know, all that stuff for our freedom and all. I definitely appreciate that, but I just love those kind of stories, which is why I was really excited about having you here to kind of talk a little bit about that stuff. So, well, I'm going to branch on some, off something you just said, man. I was planning on talking about it later, but okay. we just talked about it. So let's sure. talk about it now. Um, you know, a lot of people will say, Hey man, thank you for your service, which I always feel uncomfortable about that because it, it was, it's absolutely been an honor to be able to do what I do. Um, I enjoyed it. You know, it was, it was for, fulfilling, you know, and I felt at that time I was a young man. It was right place, right time. So that's what I should be doing, you know, and all the things lined up for it. So it doesn't even just, it just feels like something I should have been done, doing. So it just, it feels weird when, you know, someone says that. Yeah. I mean, I get that. And from my perspective, I've, th I've actually thought about this before, because if you think, thank you for your service and what it like literally means, it does seem kind of weird to go to a stranger and say, thank you for your service. And I don't know how that started or, you know, what the full depth of the meaning is. But for me, you know, it, there's only certain ways or certain things that I can tell you right. as a, a stranger, quote unquote. If I see you in military and, you know, wearing your fatigues or whatever. But it's the gesture of thank you for your service. Like it just says everything. And that's kind of my perspective of it. So, you know, that definitely... 
don't want you to feel uncomfortable because God forbid, I mean, you're the one that went to war, not me. But, you know, it, it just kind of like an all encompassing, hey, I don't know what you've been through. I don't know where you're from or where you are now, but I do want you to understand that I appreciate that you were there. Like instead of saying all that, thank you for your <laughs> right. service. Yeah. And that, oh. it, you're right, man. That's a good way to wrap it up. And, and, and it is awesome when people acknowledge you and acknowledge that, especially our, our community and, and, and just our, our whole country, the way people respond to that. I mean, you think back to the times where, you know, when we went to war from Vietnam, you know, those guys didn't get that type of reception and people weren't aware. So it is special. It's awesome that, you know, our country and our community and people are aware of that, especially, I mean, this community in this area, man, they, they are very cognizant of that. And it, it is, it's awesome. It's super awesome. Yeah. All right. So let's kind of go back to when you were looking for Fords out there. Um, <laughs> so kind of you, I, I interrupted you of your story cause I wanted to understand what that meant, but if you want to start well, talking yeah. about that well, again, well, right before that, man, uh, one other thing I wanted to piggyback off of was the sacrifice. Yeah. Look, I don't even want to call it. We make a sacrifice. I mean, we, we do, but again, we, we agreed to this. We signed up for it. It's all volunteer military yep. now. So it, what we're doing is out there, what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. The people that really make a sacrifice is the families. They didn't sign, they didn't sign up for this. Yeah, that's very true. They did not, you know, they didn't volunteer for this. They didn't raise their hand to go do this. Um, man, it, it's, it's a lot on them. Um, you know, worrying about what's going on not hearing from family members. Um, and then just the day to day what people, I think if people grasp that, right. But what people don't grasp, I think, or it's just hard for them to understand. It's just that day to day stuff, man. Um, cutting the grass, your, your, your faucets leaking. Um, yeah. Anything, a, a, a tire that's flat, man, it's, it's, it's difficult. That's a lot for a, a family yep. to, or you know. just, you know, speaking of significant others, just the fact that they're missing their best friend. Yeah. You know, the person that they committed to is just not there by their side. And, you know, watching American Idol at night, you know, it's just something right. so simple as that. Yep. And, and, and you know, you most of the time you have someone else to share the load on a lot of other things, man. Bringing the kids to soccer, mm -hmm. um, homework, all that stuff, man. Um, and my awesome wife, Natalie, you know, I mean, it's she's working, taking care of kids you know, doing all those things all on her own. And we're talking, you know, my deployments went from, you know, man, the first one was upwards around 18 months. I was gone, not home for like 18 months. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't in country for uh, overseas for 18 months, but you know, we had some training lead up and all that stuff, but I was essentially, am. I mean, it, I was just gone. That's a long time, man. That's a lot of work. So yep. hats off to all the military families, you know, yep, spouses, definitely. kids. I mean, that's, that's uh, that's a lot. That's who really sacrifices. We don't sacrifice. I mean, most of the time we're out there doing stuff that's fun. I mean, blowing stuff up, shooting yeah. that stuff. I mean, right. that's flying helicopters. Yeah, we're not gonna definitely I mean, appreciate you know, that. So, yeah, so we don't do a whole lot of sacrifice, and those are the ones that sacrifice. So, yeah. but yeah, man. Uh, back to the, what did you call back it? Back to L searching looking for, for forwards. forwards. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, man. So, uh, it, but really, what we did a lot. And I, I was in more close to the. I was in the Baghdad area and the surrounding areas. Um, it was a uh, interesting time, man. It was it was very um, busy, if you will. Uh, we were we were very busy um, out there, you know, fighting the insurgency. Um, super rewarding though, man, because what we were able to do is <clears throat> there's a large group of people around this world that do not like the way what we're about, and they want to do harm to us. 
at take 911, right? Yep. That's that's their goal. So it's super rewarding to be able to go and take that fight to them so that we don't have to see that here, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, that wouldn't have stopped uh, 9-11. That type of stuff wouldn't have stopped. So us going there and dealing with it over there. Um, and then also the, the, the other things that are great about it, for example, Iraq. The regime that was going on there was horrible. I mean, atrocities. We've The people in the United States do not see evil like that is. I mean, that, that's true evil that we don't see. We are not. We've never seen. Uh, so for us to go there and fight for people that can't fight for themselves and, and defeat that, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty awesome, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and that's part that as a, young, as a young guy back then, I mean, I was 23, 24 years old. I didn't understand that, you know. Yeah. You go realize that after the fact when you're, you're out there in those villages there every day. 12, 14 hours a day, then you get to realize that. So that was super awesome, man. You know, um, it makes it worth it. I, I wouldn't, you know, I don't regret it. You know, it was awesome. So, uh, but yeah, tough, man. Um, tough conditions. Um, it was, it was rough, man. Um, it was awesome though, man. Uh, a bunch of guys from Louisiana out there. I mean, the whole brigade, if, infantry brigade. So thousands of guys from Louisiana going out there and making a difference was pretty cool. And we lost, you know, we lost quite a few guys on that one. That one was tough. But, uh, again, what we were out there doing was, you know, worth it. So. Yeah. So I'd imagine, you know, that's part of going to war is not everybody's going to survive and you're going to have some certain casualties. I can only imagine that, you know, you spend a lot of time with a guy, training with a guy, maybe even if he's from Louisiana or from your hometown, or and then you go up there and, and he's not coming back home. So you think about the whole sacrifice thing, like, you know, if he's got family, God forbid, and, you know, he's never coming home. That's got to be, that's a tough toll. That's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, and it is, man. In a little town right down the road from us, Homa, you know, uh, we lost uh, one incident there. We lost a bunch of guys from one community mm-hmm. in one attack. I mean, that's hard for a, a town like that to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, that's tough. Um, so things like that, when that happens, that's that's really hard, you know. Uh, but again, the, the whole, the whole thing was rewarding. Uh, we did a lot of awesome work back then, man. It was really, really, really good. We, we changed a lot, a lot, you know, changed a lot of things for a lot of lives of people, the people over there that live there in Iraq, you know, the, the regular Joe that is just going to work and trying to live his life with a war going on around them, you know? So I'm sure that's, that's freaking bananas too. Just having a war outside and you trying to go to work. Like it doesn't even seem like. That could be real. <laughs> it, uh, it's, it's, it's surreal. I mean, you're there in the street, you know, one minute you get kids around you and, and the kids loved us, you know, we we're hanging out just, you know, we we're in the streets every day, you know, yeah. just patrolling basically just means driving around looking for a fight is what yeah. we were doing every day. So, uh, but you get to know all the people out there the villages, the towns and man, they're just living their life, man. It's crazy. And then all of a sudden all hell breaks loose and, we're getting after it, and it's just in there. Yeah. Na- it's in the middle of their neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, so if if you're in the neighborhood, you're basically there protecting them, right? Yeah. And then when all hell breaks loose, as you say, that's usually from someone outside of the community. So how do how are you accepted by, you know, the normal Joe, who's uh, which I'm sure his name's not Joe, but <laughs> you know. Like how how do they accept y'all? How do they treat y'all? Do they understand that y'all are there to help them, or do y'all get some pushback? No, they do. Uh, most of them do. Most of them do. Uh, a lot of them 
uh, really enjoyed us being there. We, we established some really good relationships because we did a lot for the communities also there, man. Um, building schools, building things. We wasn't just tearing and breaking things down and blowing things up. We were building stuff, things that they never had. So, yeah, we, we, you, you get a good bond. Um, and then there's onesies and twosies in those communities. And really what was happening then was there was some, you know, the insurgent group there was going into these towns and they were recruiting these these young kids or young men uh, to fight with them and to do things. A big thing back then was uh, IEDs, which basically bombs, mm-hmm. you know, hidden in the roads. Uh, so they would r- recruit these. And when I say recruit, not like, hey, man, come join our fight. They would force them, right, yeah. with, with, with harm or, or, or they did some really bad stuff, like, to their families and things like that. And they were really scared of those people. So that's what we were dealing with, man. Um, and then, again, in the middle of us driving around or doing our thing, you know, it would just break out into a fight or a bomb would explode. And, yeah, it's kind of weird, man. It's You're in a neighborhood, and all of a sudden that, that goes down. It's, 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 uh, it's different, man. It's really weird, mm-hmm. you know. But so you didn't stay um, as the Ford Observer. Like, you, you changed. Uh, what, what do you call your a job in your MOS? Is, is that MOS, what they call it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So what is MOS just for people that are, uh, who, who don't know? Military Occupation Specialty. Yeah, so it's basically your job in the military. Your job in the MOS. military, yeah. So you went from that Ford Observer, yep. and but you did something else. Yeah, so uh, I went there, and in, it, in, in route to doing something else, uh, at the end of that deployment, uh, there's a little thing called Hurricane Katrina. Oh, yeah. So as if things aren't bad enough, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm in, and back then, I mean, and I say it back then, like it was so far, so long ago. I mean, it was long it ago. Was but long time <laughs> it ago. was, it was. But it wasn't like today. Um, I was, I remember we, we didn't get to we didn't get to use phones and there wasn't, you know, the digital age wasn't Maui going. Yeah, Maui's barking in the background, yeah. <laughs> he likes what he, I said. Yeah, he wants to be in the podcast. Must be somebody in the driveway. <laughs> so just disregard the bar- the dog barking in the background. Sorry. <laughs> so um Man, back then you couldn't just get on the phone, or you couldn't get on, uh, you know, what we have now. It used to be Skype, and now um, Zoom or anything like that, right? Or talk to your family. Right. We literally were still writing letters back then, and I might be able to call home, I don't know, once or twice a week, once a week, once every two weeks, something like that. You know, some you, you get more than often, but some you you would get to more often than some. But I remember, I don't know, man, a few weeks before I was coming home. A month, maybe. I called home and I called my wife, Natalie. I said, hey, what, what are y'all doing? She's like, oh, we're packing up and about to leave. I'm like, where are y'all going? She's like, we're going to Houston. They got this big old hurricane coming here. I'm like, what? <laughs> and that's how. Oh, so you didn't even know. No idea, coming. man. No clue, man. No clue. So uh, we packed up, got, and we kind of actually expedited coming home a little bit because of it. Um, and they got us out pretty quick. And uh, anyway, I showed up home two weeks after. I showed back up in Louisiana two weeks after hurricane katrina which was a whole nother mess yeah a whole nother disaster go from one battle zone to the next battle zone huh crazy man um so yeah man i was we were living in kennebra and uh we went back our, our house was you know a mess um got right to doing that you know like just like everybody was doing yeah. cutting sheetrock out yeah. you know oh, so y'all took on a bunch of water there and man yeah we did uh not a i mean a good bit you know I mean, it wasn't like you know, wasn't like Lakeview. The, yeah, Lakeview. That that's the hardest hit area. Yeah, it wasn't like that, but we got a good bit of water, and we were actually had just purchased a new house, 
and we were selling a con- me and Allie were living in a condo and we were selling out. We, so we actually bo- owned both at that point. And we were a little nervous because both of them had water mm-hmm. and we didn't know what was going on. I mean, y'all, I mean, everybody knew around then. I mean, there's communication, no communication. You didn't know what was going on. So it was kind of scary time, but it all worked out real well. But, um, kind of how my story ended there, man, we came back, came back from war, you know, combat and, uh, I wanted to do a little something. So I was going back to, back to a traditional guardsman, man. Like I was just a reservist. So, um, I decided instead of going back to school, I just really enjoyed what I was, that kind of work and what I was doing. So I ended up deciding to become a police, a police officer. And I actually worked for Jefferson Parish Sheriff's office, uh, for a little while. Went to Academy there. Um, did some good stuff there, was there about seven months. And then I got an offer from the army to go to flight school, to fly helicopters. So of course I took that opportunity. So, but how does that happen? They just reach out to you and say, Hey, you, you fit this bill. How does that work? Yeah. They just said, Hey man, you look pretty awesome. You want to fly helicopters? Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no. That makes, that makes total sense. <laughs> no, man. It's just by happenstance. I didn't know anything about it. Uh, so I was enlisted. I was a sergeant. Actually, I was a staff sergeant. And then there's a program in the Army. There's kind of two ways to fly. And this is only in the Army now. Um, we have what's called warrant officers. So an officer, a traditional officer, like a lieutenant, a captain, right? Mm-hmm. You go to college, you get a degree, and there's a commissioning source, and then you go do different jobs, and that's a way to fly. Another way in the Army is to become a warrant officer. What a warrant officer is is just a very specialized um, job skill. We have them in all different jobs, but one is a pilot. So what that is, you don't have to have you don't have to ha- you don't have to have a degree, um, but basically, your what qualifies you is your past experience, just being an expert in your field, those types of things. Anyway, you got to go to a board and be selected and all that stuff and put a, put a big packet together. It's actually a lengthy process. That whole process took me a, a whole year to do, just to leave to go to flight school. It took a year. Mm-hmm. It's medical stuff. Uh, evaluation, uh, an exam, all kinds of stuff that goes into that. Right. Anyway, um, so that's how that happened. And, and the way I got into it, I didn't know anything about it. A guy that I had worked with way back in 2001, like right after 9-11, uh, that I was on a task force when I was telling you about how we secured the ports and stuff like that. A guy that I was working with back then, he was in an aviation unit. And he just reached out to me and said, hey, man, are you interested in doing this? And I was like, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That'd be great. It's a big giant video game. Yeah. So it was really fun. So uh anyway, I got upset, accepted to that. Went up to Fort Rucker, Alabama, man. Lived up uh so I got to live in Alabama for Alabama. A, Alabama for about a year. Um Natalie and Ashlyn came with me. They lived there for a little while with me. That was an interesting experience. Uh fun, challenging time. Um flight school took about a year. Uh and I kinda got pushed through a little quickly. Um, but a lot of stuff that goes on there was super fun time. Very, like I said, very challenging, a lot of stuff packed into a year. I mean, a year sounds like a long time to learn something, but Mm -hmm. that was a lot of stuff packed into one year. Right. So what all goes entail or what all is entail that goes into training to, um, so you were flying Blackhawks, right? Did we say that yet? Yep. Flying Blackhawks. So you're flying Blackhawks. And for anybody that doesn't know, again, I'm no military genius, but to me, I used to play a lot of Call of Duty, you know, like on the Xbox. <laughs> and uh, the Blackhawk was a bad mamma jamma. Like if any time the Blackhawk came out, you just knew shit was about to go down. So to me, that's just, that's a that's a badass piece of machinery. 
It is, man. It's a nice piece of machinery. But uh, yeah, so the process of that is a lot goes into it, man. There's so many phases of the the training. You don't, they don't just give you a black hawk for day one. Here's a black hawk. You yeah, know, no, go, you here you go. go to driving school. <laughs> right. Have the guy next to you with his own steering wheel and brakes. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of yeah, it's kind of like that. Yeah, uh, exactly like that. So we you start off in a little bitty, a little baby helicopter. A little baby, <laughs> a little baby helicopter, and you fly it. You do multiple phases, tactics, instruments, all kinds of different things. Uh, so you go through that process, and then you basically go through the same thing in a Blackhawk. And in between all these courses, you also do some other stuff. We do some survival school. Um, one of the most, one of the more interesting ones is water survival, uh, which is really cool. Well, I think it's cool. A lot of people hate it. Yeah, I can imagine, especially if you have a little fear of water. I've seen some little videos of stuff like that, so I kind of know a little bit about it. But yeah, yeah, interesting. It's cool, man. You you spend a couple of days in the classroom learning just how to survive out in the water. Um, and then they put you, um, for a couple of days in a pool. It's a, uh, I say a pool, it's a big indoor facility. That's got a massive pool. Um, and you learn all kinds of water survival stuff, but the, but the height of it is a mock-up of a helicopter that they put you in and dunk it underwater. Yeah. So it's like just the cab of the helicopter, right? Yep. So you're all buckled in, strapped in. They put you in the water, and I'm sure this thing probably rolls upside down. It rolls upside down, exactly, because most helicopters, all the weight's up at the top. So if yep. you go in the water, it automatically flips upside down. Yeah, so you are literally strapped in upside down in the water. Exactly right. And I don't know if the military is different, but in normal life, you can't breathe underwater. <laughs> no, you can't. It's same, same, same there. Yeah. Well, there's, a, there's another phase of it. But, yeah, that's the first part is you learn how to get out, mm -hmm. you know, because – Stuff hits the fan when you go underwater. Yep. And they even do a part where you're blindfolded because to simulate at night, you yep. know, because it can happen at night. Yep. So, uh, yeah, people get kicked, you know, getting out of that thing because there's, they strap a bunch of people in there, you know, mm -hmm. and it's funny. Everybody's scrambling trying to get out. Yeah, um, it's funny after. It's funny yeah, after. Oh, uh, remember that time that you <laughs> you basically pooed your panties and you kicked me in the face when you was trying to get out? Yeah, that was, those are good times. Yeah. It wasn't at that time, no. Yeah. So, uh, Again, like the military, we got all these little special toys. So the second phase of that is they give you a little bottle. It's called a Heeds bottle. It's like a little little miniature uh, scuba tank, if you will. It's uh, just to give you about 30 seconds, a minute of, of air. So you learn how to use that. So what you can do is you can use that, breathe a little bit, and then get out and have, have some air. So, yeah, we can breathe under the water. Oh, yeah, <laughs> technically, I guess, a technicality. But, I, I mean, you know, ultimately – you just you have to practice those things, uh, emergency drills, and it, and that that goes to everything. You know, I work at a chemical plant. We do emergency training all the time, which is not necessarily the same as the military training, dunking us in the pool. But you know, in the event that shit hits the fan, and you know, you gotta you gotta know how to react. You gotta at least know a starting point. You don't have to know everything, but as long as you're calm, cool, and collective, and you know where to start, then you can start to figure things out. Man, so. and right where we started from, those things you learn is playing baseball or football or soccer as a kid. Yeah, yeah, because I'm sure you're, gonna, you're not doing it by yourself. You got to rely on your teammates. Got to rely on your team. Learning the basics, the fundamentals, right? Because that's that's what gets you out of that situation is learning the fundamentals and just going back to the fundamentals. You know, the first time I ever heard the the term muscle memory was playing sports as a kid. You know, mm -hmm. and it's so true with anything, shooting. Flying helicopters, anything, it, it, it holds true and understand how to build that muscle memory and yep. train right. Right. And, you know, speaking of that, you always hear people say, oh, practice makes perfect. You know, you, well, you don't want to practice. Practice doesn't make perfect. 
practice makes it um, where you have that muscle memory, you know, and you don't want to, you don't want to do it just to where you don't get it, you know, practice till you get it right. Well, no, you practice until you just can't get it wrong. That's kind of what I was getting at. Perfect practice makes perfect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, So you just got to keep doing it so many times that you just, no matter what happens, you're just ready for it because you've done it a million times. Exactly right. Yep. So that was inter- that's an interesting phase of that uh, training. Um, we do some other stuff, and then you get into uh, – then they give you that nice uh, pretty Blackhawk to go fly. And then you kind of use the same – you go through that same training scenario as you did with the little helicopter. And then you go through that. You do it, you know, night, daytime, instruments, tactics, all that kind of stuff. Um, my road was a little different uh, than most. So most people about that time were probably getting out of flight school. They were there for – a little over a year, maybe a year, two months, three months. I finished right at a year uh, because my unit back here that I was coming to was going deploying again. We're going going back to Iraq. And uh, I knew that. So I was uh, getting done, getting favors. So I get in courses at the right time that so that I could make it, you know, with my unit. So, um, so I got through pretty quick. I left Fort Rucker, Alabama and was in Iraq two weeks later. Dang. From flight school. I did not fly one time outside of flight school. My next flight out of flight school was in combat. Wow. That is unheard of. Uh, what we do is a thing. So when you go to flight school, you basically know how to fly a helicopter. Mm-hmm. Barely. So oh, you basically <laughs> barely. Oh, I got you. Yeah. So you come back out, you go to your unit, wherever you belong, and then you got instructor pilots. And we'll get into that more now. So kind of what I, the track I went on as an instructor pilot. Now I'm a standardization pilot. Um, you go to those guys in the unit and then they teach you all the tactic stuff and we, we, it's a progression level, we call it. And it generally takes about three months. And when you're talking about tactics, like explain to me, I mean, I understand tactics cause I'm a soccer coach. Yeah. Um, so explain to me tactics, what exactly that means and what are you like, what are you talking about when it comes to flying a helicopter? Yeah. So in, like in flight school, right. We learn how to fly a helicopter from point A to B from one airport to another, yeah. maybe go land in a field or something. Right. That's playing soccer. Right. Okay. Then when we go to tactics or tactical from the unit side, when you start really learning your job of what you're going to do with that helicopter, now we're picking up guys and bringing them to the fight, the front door, flying low level in the trees, down on the, that's tactics, learning how to fly against uh, other threat uh, so people don't can't shoot at you or won't shoot at you. Um, all those those types of things, how to get a mission done, how to fly missions. Before, all you do is learn, I'm going to take this helicopter and go from A to yeah. over here to over there. Yeah, so it's funny that you say that. Now that I'm thinking about it, you're, you, you can fly defensively uh, whenever you have people that, maybe wish some harm on you and they want to shoot you down with RPG or something. So you actually fly defensively. Like, what does that look like? I mean, obviously we're not going point A to B. So are we just zigzagging like up and down? So we're using terrain, altitude, airspeed, cover of darkness, the height, how much of illumination, how much of the moon is out, you know, Uh all those things. Very cool. Planning. The planning is insane. You know, how much you plan for every, I don't know. It's probably, I don't know, three hours of planning for every hour of execution. Wow. Yeah, that you're planning that. Um, so that's what you start learning. And then you, you talk about defensive, right? Like we're going to, because a lot of what we're going to do is we're going to sneak in somewhere. Like we don't want anybody to see us. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to go to offensive operations. 
I mean, it's funny that you say sneak in because I don't know if anybody's <laughs> ever heard a Black Hawk helicopter before, but that thing is not sneakable. <laughs> that is a loud piece of machinery. It is when you know how to use it, right? Yeah, but I, I, I know, you're right. Like, you know, you and I have talked about some things where, uh, you know, there's certain things where it, it bounces off of the mountain a certain way, or if you're at a certain elevation or like, it's hard. You can't really pinpoint where that's coming from. That you technically, you really do sneak up on somebody. Yeah. <laughs> in a giant battle tank that's in the air. Yeah, we do. Um, there's things you use. I mean, we even look at the wind, the, the direction of the wind, and how that carries at night, opposed to in an open desert or an urban environment. There's so many things that go into into that, and how we approach um, going into a target. Uh, the direction we come from, where the light is, where. Uh, certain buildings are terrain it, it there's so many things that go in that we and that's what you're learning as a you know what we call it is the rl progression um and then to add another layer to that in flight school you're flying it's just you but now we're going to put nine more helicopters with you and we're going to go take 10 helicopters and do that thing yeah or you know five um blackhawks and couple apaches or you know some schnook you're going to mix it mix it up with other helicopters and and do it at a specific time we're going to arrive with 10 helicopters at this exact time like exact to the second in this exact spot um that we've never been to before you know yes yeah, so, i mean it sounds like you're kind of in a pressure cooker so how do you just maintain your presence and you know not put so much extra stress on yourself with those with so many demands man it's and it goes all the way back to training man the basics just it's it's like, you know, you do those things and you're not even thinking about where you're at. It's it's you're in that you're just doing the basics it, in in the outside environment doesn't even, you know, it doesn't you don't even realize the outside environment or what you're actually doing at that point. You're just executing those fundamentals and those basics of yeah. what you're doing. And it's funny, too, because now I'm thinking about the conversation we had earlier about soccer, because obviously that's my you know, my thought process. I don't have military experience, but. You know, as you and I have talked about in the past, one of the problems that we had as a team at Hornville was if we were playing teams that were ranked, you know, higher than number 10, like let's say 10 through 20, it was always a good game uh, because they were pretty evenly matched with us. You were technically on the cusp of the top 10 every year. But as soon as we played some of those powerhouses, you know, one, two, three, four, five, like those ranks, we just would fall apart. Well, number one, the girls were intimidated and were already defeated before they even got there because they didn't think they were worthy, which, which is, you know, BS because they were definitely good competitors and could have played with them. So I, I, I'm kind of, you know, getting a little off tangent here, but the point I'm getting to is that this year we had a much harder schedule. We played a lot of those inside the top 10 teams and while we didn't win any of those, we won a couple of those games. Um, they became battle tested. And really the reason we did that was because we knew that if we threw them to the fire and you had to figure it out, that by the time the playoffs came and we were forced again to play those teams, then it was no big deal because you had been doing it. It was just what you did. Hey, we're just going to play soccer now. It doesn't matter what kind of jersey that is. And – you know, a lot of the girls, a lot of the parents, they didn't really care for that process. And maybe we maybe we probably had a little bit tougher schedule than we had wanted to have, but the intent was there. And 
clearly making it to the quarterfinals playing against, you know, we beat the number three team in the state of Louisiana. That's not, I mean, that's not just something you can just shake a stick at. It doesn't just accidentally happen. So, but anyway, I digress. No, but that was super awesome. And that was awesome to watch that and the girls to go through that. That was awesome. And it was rough in the middle there. I mean, it, it was, I mean, in, but I think they did learn a lot from that. And that is exactly what we do in the military. When we train to go to something and work up to that, man, we stack the deck against us and make it so grueling and so hard and so many things go wrong that when we get to it and it all goes right, it's like, oh, man, that wasn't that yeah, wasn't too bad. Exactly. Who cares if a guy was shooting an RPG at me? Right. That was easy. <laughs> Not that, but, you know, like it's like in, a, in an instructor pilot when I fly with guys and I give them we have we take um, we take uh, annual evaluations every year or multiple actually. And when we do those types of things and when guys train with me, I'm in there and I'm throwing curveballs at them. I'm pulling an engine off, like taking an engine offline, um, simulating a fire, all different kinds of emergencies, which would never happen. And in, in even at that, that level, I mean, things happen and that's why we train them, but we stack it so high. It's, it's exactly that same thing, man. You get out and you feel beat and, but, but that's what you have to do, you know? Yeah. To, to get to that level, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of my papa told me a joke a long time ago. They had a guy that was on an airplane. It had four engines on it. The pilot comes out and says, well, the first engine just went out, but don't worry. We're only going to be an hour late. A little while later, pilot comes back on and says, ladies and gentlemen, the second engine has just gone out, but don't worry. We're only going to be two hours late. Of course, a little while later, it comes back on. Ladies and gentlemen, our third engine has just gone out, but not to worry. We will only be three hours late. Obudro was on that plane. He said, man, if that fourth engine goes out, we're going to be up here forever. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to, that. I just popped in my head. I'm so. going gonna to take that one. I'm going to start using that <laughs> <Yeah>. training. <laughs> Obudro. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, man, that's uh, that's important, man. I think y'all did a good job with that. That was it was and it was awesome to see the girls do that, you know. Back to back to what we we're talking about, man. So that <laughs> tactics. That's, yeah. oh, that's, tactics. Is, that, is that what we were talking about? I, I think so. Oh, so in a nutshell, oh, yeah, we just lost all three of my listeners. <laughs> so in a nutshell, that's tactics. Uh, so that process when we teach uh, new aviators tactics and that type of stuff is about three months. Uh, so what I did was I left flight school and went to Iraq for that that training that I would have got back in the States for three months, I did in about two days. And then I was out doing, uh, combat missions, which was, man, it was like drinking from a fire hose. It was eye opening. Um, it was a lot. So I was learning on the fly, man, literally thrown into the fire, you know, which was awesome. Um, so we did another, another tour in Iraq, uh, Baghdad area. Well, really all over, but we kind of centrally located in Baghdad, but, you know, flying helicopters, seeing a lot more of the country than uh, 2008. So that was 2008, um, went to Iraq again, uh, flying Blackhawks. Awesome experience, man, getting to see it uh, from that, from them being on the ground, now coming back to the same country, doing the same kind of thing, and doing it from the air was uh, pretty awesome, man. It's a big, big difference and a lot to see. So what, I know, man, I know you were flying Blackhawks, but what was your actual job? Like what kind of, what kind of stuff were you doing there? Now that you're in a helicopter. So we do a lot of different things, man. The, the Blackhawk is like the workhorse of, of the, you know, the military. We did a lot of moving people, uh, moving stuff. And then 
tactical missions like uh, air assaults. That, that's what our unit is, an air assault unit. Uh, the Army uses Blackhawks to do a lot of different things, uh, medevac, general support, and then um, air assault. Um, basically, air assaults is the easiest way to explain it is bringing the dudes going to kick the doors in, d- bringing them to that door they got to be kicked in yeah. by helicopter. Okay, yeah, because, I mean, I hate to even have this comparison, but, you know, you see a lot of um, movies where the guy's flying that Blackhawk. He comes down, like, at 100 miles an hour, it seems like. Kajoosh, hits the ground. Everybody jumps out and just takes off again. That's that's exactly what it is. Oh, so you mean a movie actually got something right? (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) I'm sure it's not, you know, it's not like that. But, yeah, that's essentially what it is. I mean, it's just a a taxi cab to the fight. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and then y'all sneaking up on them through the mountains. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So um, that that's pretty neat, man. To show up somewhere and it, you got a bunch of Blackhawks landing, and they have no idea. You know, it's pretty awesome. Uh, so yeah, so did that, man. That was uh, a really good experience. Uh, did some good stuff on that that one. Um, got back in two thousand nine. Um, then went back to being a traditional guardsman again. Uh, just the weekend stuff, but now with aviation as a pilot. So, so in the National Guard or Reserves, everybody, I'm sure you heard, you know, one week in a month and then you do some training mm-hmm. in, the, in the summer. Well, as a pilot, um, you have to maintain the same minimums and currency as an active duty pilot. So we have to come in during the week. So we do the traditional guardsman thing or traditional reservist thing. But then we also have to fly. Um, we basically fly. Uh, we're, we're, we're given 72 additional training flights a year that we just kind of schedule throughout the year. So it's a lot. It's a lot more. It's it's almost like another almost full-time job. It's a lot. Uh, so going back to doing that, then I started uh, Then I started flying civilian. Uh, I was flying helicopters down here in Louisiana for the oil industry. Uh, did that for a couple of years, man. That was, uh, that was interesting. Got to fly some really awesome machines. Um, super awesome, demanding environment out over the water, over the, you know, Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Sometimes going out 250 miles offshore. You know, so that was super, super, super awesome, man. Learned a lot out there. Yep. So, but now kind of fast forward and you don't do that anymore. Now you, you still flying helicopters, but you do something a little bit different. Yeah, man. So still in, I'm still in the guard. Uh, again, I, I said I was there for, I've been in for 20, 23 years. So still doing that. Um, I deployed again in 2017 um, as a pilot. Um, did another year in Iraq or in that region and in between, uh, to, to kind of on, go back a little bit, all between those deployments. So it's three combat deployments. I've also done Haiti, um, after hurricanes and earthquakes in Haiti, mm-hmm. we've done tremendous amounts of, you know, hurricane fire stuff in the United States. We're always getting tasked for stuff like that to help out. And that is, that, and that's really rewarding, man. To be but able to, didn't go. you just go somewhere up north recently because after the freeze or something? I did. Yeah, I was up in uh, Cape Cod. It was just for a a, a planning conference for a big a big operation oh, we're okay. doing here. You know, later that remember all that planning I was talking about. I got gotcha. uh, Yeah, so it's a big uh, training exercise we do uh, here in the states, and it was just a planning conference for that. But yeah, so always a lot of a lot of little things like that pop up. I mean, it's constant. It's always things popping up like that. Floods, hurricanes. We support on that. Um, which is is really awesome uh being able to support your community right here at home you know mm-hmm. really cool to go we do search and rest you know, that's one of our main missions search and rescue uh during hurricanes and natural disasters so that's that's super awesome and rewarding to be able to do that kind of stuff too yep. so anyway with all that going on uh 
another deployment in 2017, 18, um, in that region. And then, uh, came back and, uh, did a little bit shift on, uh, what I was doing in civilian flying. Uh, so I got into doing civilian medevac, um, working for a company called Metro Aviation. Um, basically what Metro Aviation does is we operate civilian medevac helicopters all over the country. Uh, we, for a lot of hospitals and ambulance services. So, I mean, not to sound like a dummy, but you're basically an ambulance in the sky. Ambulance in the sky, man. Yeah, buddy. Yeah. So, and, and why helicopters are so good at, that is such a good role for helicopters is we can, we can pretty much get anywhere. Yeah. You can get, you can get anywhere. There's no traffic. <laughs> no I mean, tra- that, I'm sure the, the, the hardest part for y'all is going to be finding somewhere to land. Sometimes uh, it's, it's challenging, but a lot of times, I mean, those helicopters, we can get them in a lot of places, man. I've landed interstates, people's backyards, front yard. I mean, everywhere in the marsh, on a boat lawn. I mean, it's, you know, mm-hmm. we can, we can get a lot of places, man, or at least somewhere close that they can get it, get somebody to us, you know? Uh, so that, so anyway, Metro, what we do is we fly and maintain helicopters for hospitals, ambulance services. And here in Louisiana, there's a uh, big company that pretty much almost runs most of the ambulance stuff, um, in, in Louisiana called Acadian, uh, Acadian ambulance. So they do a large portion of the ambulance, uh, emergency medical service in Louisiana and we operate their aircraft, uh, 11 aircraft, well, 12 aircraft, 11 bases. We have, uh, part of that package is Oshner hospital and children's, uh, in new Orleans, children's hospital in new Orleans. We operate those. Uh, and that's most, uh, I would say probably 90% or 95% of the, um, medical helicopters in Louisiana we operate. Um, and now I actually, um, in management there and I kind of manage, help manage the program here in Louisiana, the whole, the whole program here in Louisiana. Okay. So do you, but you still fly sometimes, right? Yeah, I still fly sometimes, um, a good bit. Um, every now and then I do a lot of training out in the field. I get to, um, spend a lot of time with new, you know, new pilots that we get, um, manage it, vent, you know, visit all the bases and I get to fly. So yeah, it's, it's, I still get to fly a good bit. And it, again, super rewarding, man. Being able to do it right here in the community and especially in South Louisiana, man, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And that's got to carry a little extra stress with it too, because number one, if somebody's calling you for some service, it's never good because it's not just going to be somebody cut their finger open. It's not going to be somebody bump their head on the door. If they're calling a medevac helicopter, there is a pretty dire emergency, uh, whether it's it probably life or death situation, right? So how do you deal with that knowing that every single time you go out, you're going to find something off the wall? Yeah, man, it's, it's, and it is difficult because w- what we don't want to do is push the envelope and put ourselves in a, in a dangerous situation. You know, we're not helping anybody if we take off and we get in a bad spot and now we're crashing a helicopter, hurting more people, causing more of an emergency. Right. Um, we, we don't want to do that. That is really bad. Um, so it's just, again, what we talked before, it's just that focus and doing the basics. And part of it is is what I try to do and what we try to do as a standard in, 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 in general is kind of not try not to know what type of call we're going to. Try not to try to know as little information about that so that we just treat everything the same way. And, again, just developing processes, try, trusting that process, and doing that over and over again and just focus. And it's hard sometimes, you know. Yeah, but how does that call come in? I mean, so you're not a doctor. Your your job is to fly the helicopter, but obviously you're flying with 
doctors or nurses. I'm not even sure. Uh, do you fly with doctors? We, well, we do sometimes. Um, we fly with our standard crew is a nurse and a paramedic. Now, it's, these nurses and paramedics are highly trained. I mean, they're usually, you know, they're all emergency medicine t- uh, yep. trained um, and they have a lot of experience. And then sometimes we do have some programs that we do carry a doctor. We'll carry a, me- a paramedic and a doctor. Um, and it's usually residents out of uh, LSU, which is one of the major, uh, you know, trauma centers here in the region, uh, right there in New Orleans, uh, University Medical Center. So we'll take residents with us on that, you know, on those flights. So the way the call comes out is someone calls 911. Um, and we have a dispatch center that is kind of monitoring those calls. And they'll, there's certain things that come out, you know, keywords or certain things that they know, hey, this is, this is probably pretty serious. And then they'll send, you know, send the call to us and, we'll, and then we'll respond with all the other emergency services. Um, so that's one way. Another way is we do a lot of transporting people from uh, like rural hospitals to a higher level care of a bigger hospital. Um, so that's just the hospital calls and says, hey, we need a helicopter because we need to get this person to another a higher level care right. quickly. But I guess the reason I was asking is, you know, you try to kind of focus on the task at hand and not worry so much about what you're actually flying to. But when the call does come in, somebody has to get in touch with you guys because obviously you're not part of dispatch. Dispatch is going to call you. So the paramedics, they have to know. They've got to know what they're going into. But so who takes the call and what information are you getting? Yeah, so that's a good question, man. So the initial call comes to the pilot. And they'll call, again, it's so um, just a process, right? So you're just thinking about that process. So you have someone call, and of course, you know, it's 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 detailed process. So it's not, hey, we got a crash on highway, uh-huh. I-10, we need you to go. So they'll call us and just say, hey, uh, we have a call for you, and it's a, a certain distance and a direction. And then we take that information, we look at quickly look at the weather and other factors and say, yeah, we can do it or not. Then they send it to us digitally. Um, we go through a whole process of risk assessment real quick and some other real quick things. And it's about on average, about 12 minutes. We get a call and we are in the air 12 minutes later. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's a lot that happens in 12 minutes. So most of the time we just have a general idea of what's going on. Then the medics, as we're doing all that stuff, they're getting information via radio, phone calls, Stuff like that, giving them information on what's actually going on. Yeah, I guess that that really makes a lot of sense, too, because if they call you first, make sure that you can even put the helicopter in the air, and then you work on your risk assessment, and that's the only thing you got to focus on. Yep. So that way it's like, here's what you need to know, figure it out. And then the medics and all, they they reach out or however that process works. That way they can do their thing and focus on their part. Yeah, man, and actually that part really keeps you away from the, the situation because there's so much going on in so short a period of time. You can't even, you don't even emotionally get involved. There's so many things that are going through your head, going in the right order, doing all those processes. It, it, it's like, it's, it's not even, you know, that's not even in the, in your mind because your, your, your total mental capacity is being taken up by yeah. that other stuff. Yeah. And I can imagine how much that would get in your way if, if God forbid there was a child involved and you know, you knew that you had to get there. You'd probably have that normal, urge that anybody would want to have, especially as a father trying to push the envelope and trying to get there. But you know, that, that, that can actually 
like you said earlier, just put other people in danger. So it's definitely not something you want to do. Yeah. And unfortunately in our industry, there's been a lot of um, bad incidents that have happened because of that or pushing weather, pushing things. And we have developed control measures, you know, over and over and over to, to help us not do that. I mean, it's, it's happened a lot. It's, it, it has happened a lot in the past. Um, you know, it's funny. And then once you launch on that call, Unfortunately, there's some things that we're going to hear over the radio that, you know, yeah. and once you get over it right. and you see it, right. you know, uh, but luckily that at, by that point, you know, you're not going to put, you know, you've already got there. So mm-hmm. 90% of it's done, you know, right. so, um, but you know, it's interesting, man, another podcast we were doing, we're talking and me and, uh, with Alex Romero yep. and me and him actually talked about this, um, had a conversation about this, it was like his, uh, it's very similar to when he was, uh, when he was talking about kicking that field goal in an NFL game, yep. it was like, he did it. He just did the process, did it, kicked it, came off and was like, like oh crap. I just kicked the field goal. Exactly. Yeah, I remember him saying that. Yeah. It's very similar, man. It's like in, in some of the stuff, especially in combat we've done, it's like, you just go through all of it. And it all happens and it's over and it's like, man, did, did that just happen? Yeah. You know, you're just so worried about the little details. Yeah. And it's so it's I mean, look, that is probably the best prerequisite for being in the position that you are in is going through that military stuff that you've been through. Because now you're flying a helicopter to a crash site where you're trying to help people. Whereas when you're flying on the other end, you got them old knuckleheads on the other side of the, the mountain trying to shoot you down, you know, so you don't really have to fly defensively over here anymore. <laughs> no, the, the tactics part, Hey, we're just going a to B now, guys. It's okay. I got this. Unless you're over in new Orleans East. Oh, all yeah. You're probably right. Especially, over in Wagaman. Especially during Katrina, they're throwing all kind of stuff at you. Yeah. Yeah. You leave Nicole out of this. <laughs> so yeah, man. So, uh, but yeah, it's super rewarding, man. It's awesome to be able to help the community like this. And it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And and you got to see a little bit of it, man. Yeah, I did, man. I, I sure did. That was actually really cool. Uh, first time I flew in a helicopter, I got to go take a ride with you. So that worked out pretty good. Like you had called me up one day. I was like, hey, man, listen, I got to move an aircraft from Lafayette to Lake Charles. You want to go? I was like, hell yeah, I want to <laughs> go. So that was that was a pretty cool experience. Matter of fact, that was right after, was it Hurricane Laura? Or Hurricane Laura, yeah. So Hurricane Laura came in, for those that don't know, and poor Lake Charles, man, they took the brunt of this hurricane season. We had about 4,786 hurricanes, and all of them but one seems like it hit uh, Lake Charles. Well, this one was a pretty bad one. It, was, it just did all kind of destruction. Power was out, uh, just all kind of stuff, so... You, you guys have a base, I guess, for lack of better terms. You have a base out there in Lake Charles, right? And it, it got tore up. I think yeah. that was the reason. Yep. Uh, yeah, and that's that's the terminology we use, bases. Okay. Uh, but but essentially, it's just it's a helicopter and a station. And some of them are at airports, and some of them are just standalone in the community somewhere. Uh, that one we have in Lake Charles was at an airport in Lake Charles. Uh, and the hurricane destroyed the base, the, the hangar and the office. Yeah. Destroyed it. So um, after Hurricane uh, Laura, I mean, it was just, it was wiped out. Like you said, uh, Lake Charles wiped out. But shortly after, and I mean, right after, we have to provide that community with service. Right. So we had to figure out a way to do that. And uh, so basically we were operating out of the Isle of Capri Casino in Lake Charles. I know. And the crazy part is when you and I, when we left, it was daylight and we just, you know, A to B left from Lafayette to Lake Charles, which by car is an hour an hour and a half maybe yeah something like that yeah an hour and a half maybe yeah so we're we're in the helicopter we're actually flying 
kind of parallel to the interstate towards that area. And one of the interesting things that was actually kind of heartbreaking, as far as you can see, where cars leaving the Lake Charles area headed back towards Lafayette, like they were getting the hell out of there. Yeah. And there was zero cars, maybe one or two cars that we saw going towards Lake Charles. Um, and just because knowing why that was that way was a little, a little hard to, to, um, to comprehend. You know, I've got friends that live in Lake Charles, uh, his friend, my friend's family lives in Lake Charles and there was just so much stuff that was destroyed. Yeah, that was tough. And then by the time we got to Lake Charles, the sun was setting. It was in the evening, which it was a beautiful sunset. But the eeriest thing was when it was dark, it was dark yeah. because nobody had electricity. Yep. Now they had some generators, but the generators were powering up some of the houses. So they didn't have a lot of street lights. The casino was there, but it didn't have power. So matter of fact, the Isla Caprita boat had broken loose That's right. from the dock and was like under stuck that bridge. Up, yeah, stuck yeah. under the bridge. Mm-hmm. So you and I circled around, or you did, I was just sitting there, circled around, found the Isla Capri, and we actually landed on a parking garage. Yep, we landed on top floor of the parking garage. Now, one thing that I thought was really cool about that too, and there's something, you know, I just don't know anything about flying helicopters. So I know, don't either. So <laughs> yeah, I'm just <laughs> fake it. Fake it till you make it. But when we we circled probably two or three times. Yep. And I, I, I would, so I kind of asked a couple questions just because I was curious. And, you know, you were just really surveying the area. It's not anywhere that you've ever been before. And you're trying to look at everything and see what, you know, how, what, how the, you did the tactics of it, right? How are you going to yeah. go and land? And I was just kind of fascinated by it. And then when we finally decided, they had some guys that were down there and they were kind of, they worked with you. They were trying to help you out and try to land. But as we're just sitting there hovering, I'm thinking, all right, bro, like, let's go. Like, what, what you waiting for? When I, I let you be so you can concentrate. But when we finished, when we landed, you were like, oh, you see those big, tall light poles right there? They were brown and there was no lights out there. There was they weren't lit up. Right. He's like, you see those light poles? And I was like, holy shit, I do now. I never saw when we went <laughs> in the air, but you did. Yeah. So you were looking, you just knew all the right things to look for and what to watch out for because, man, you catch a propeller on that thing, that's going to be a bad day for all of us. Bad day. So, yeah, so that whole process, you're looking for wires, power, you know, poles. Wires are very hard to see um, in that light level. You know, they're they're almost impossible to see. So you want to make sure we're not going to hit any wires. Um, cranes, especially in an environment like that, there's debris everywhere. You can come in and, you know, because all that wind blowing around a helicopter, it can blow something up and come into your rotor system, which then can be a bad day. So there's so many things you're looking at, setting up into the wind correctly. A lot of, a lot of little, a lot of little factors coming into play there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why you do all your training. That's what makes you, uh, you know, an expert in your field. So I I really wasn't looking for all that. I was just looking at the pretty sunset. (laughs) Oh, you cool. I know what you was doing. Yeah, so I definitely appreciated that experience. That was pretty fun for us. That was fun. Um, yeah. But yeah, man. So nowadays you just kind of work in. You go once a month. You get a little flying here and there done, and and just training, huh? Yep. Yep. And just just being a dad. Just being a dad. Yeah. Watching soccer. Oh yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Like this is a fun time too because you know your girls play club ball. Yeah. Mine does too. So. 
know, we still going all over the creation, looking at watching them play soccer, which I love. So that's it's always so fun. much fun, man. Yeah, it, it is. It really is. So, yeah. And it's, uh, you know, interesting to see them grow and learn those lessons, you know, keep yep, learning definitely. and keep going in the right direction. So definitely. Well, Tim, I definitely appreciate you being on the podcast, man. And I'm sure we'll have you on again because you just live right around the corner. But great stories. And I hope we entertained some people and educated them on some things that, that I mean, I, I never really knew about. And I'm sure other people don't really know about either. So it's been fun. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thank you again for having me again. Yeah, uh, definitely. Two-time two time podcast. Oh, yeah, two podcasts. <laughs> ball. see if we can make it three, four, or five. I so, hope so. I'm trying out for that, uh, you know, that co-host, a little. Sneak <laughs> there you go. Got to beat out Corey. Yeah, I know. The resume's <laughs> looking good, ball. Looking good. All right, guys. Well, thanks for tuning in. And until next time, say hi to your mom and them for me.